Hi, welcome to Come Follow Me with Brie, episode 114, Bravery. Hello, everyone. I'm so glad you're here. So this week I contemplated not doing an episode because normally I my bulk of my preparing is on Monday night. And if I were really on top of things in my life, I would really buckle down and just prepare a bunch in advance so that I always had them ready to come out exactly when they were supposed to. But to tell you the truth, typically Monday night I prepare. And originally I had most other Come Follow Me podcast released on Monday. And I started out trying to do that, but then discovered that that made my weekends really stressful. And so I decided to start releasing on Tuesday mornings. Anyway, so this Monday was Halloween. And I spent that Monday doing things with my kids and trick-or-treating and all the things. And I just really didn't have time to prepare on on this past Monday. And then I did that short little kids Halloween episode that if you haven't listened to with your kids, you should go back and listen to it. It makes Ezekiel's vision so fun. But I kind of wanted to justify and be like, "Eh, I did sort of did an episode and we'll call it good since I didn't have time. But then I remembered that our topic is the book of Daniel and I have been waiting for the book of Daniel. I am so excited. This week has so many cool stories that I'm excited to dive in deeper with myself, and I'm also excited to talk about one of these really cool stories with you today. So with no further ado, let's get into what we talk about this week in the book of Daniel. So I'm going to give you a few thoughts before we dive in, just to give you a little bit of of tools to use as you read the book of Daniel. And then also, I'm going to give you a recap of all six chapters that we're studying And it's a pretty short recap, and you definitely should go in and read them all and really dive into what you can learn from them. But I find it's helpful to kind of give a recap to give you some context. So to start out, there are historical inaccuracies in the book of Daniel. The most glaring one is that the king that we're introduced to in chapter 6, King Darius, there are no secular records of this king. This is the only record we have of him. And it's also as they introduce the order of kings in what happens in history as the Persians take over the Babylonians, that's not the order we get in a lot of records. So this is assumed to be an error. We are only studying chapters one through six in Come Follow Me. And I I'm so excited, like I said, because it's a bunch of stories and we've been in prophecy for so long, which is also cool, but it's, they're just, they're such good stories. And if I had time in my life, I would create a podcast episode about each and every one. Chapter seven through 12 are prophecy that we have from Daniel. So definitely worth your time reading if you have time to get through that. But what we have as required reading for Come Follow Me this week is just one through six. One more thing I want to address before we really get into it is names can be slightly confusing in the book of Daniel. I'm sure you all recognize the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and of course the name Daniel. So these four characters, their Hebrew names were Daniel, Hanaiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These four young men were brought into captivity by the Babylonians, who are also called the Chaldeans, after the first conquering of Jerusalem. And it is thought that perhaps Daniel was of royal descent along with his three friends. And when they were brought to Babylon, the king commanded that some of the most excellent, smart, handsome, without flaw young men to be trained in this three-year-long training program about how to be good 
smart, awesome, productive Chaldeans. As part of this training program, they were given the king's meat and wine to make them strong. And that's what all the young men in the program were given. As they entered into Babylonian life, they were given new names. And the three of Daniel's companions were given the new names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel was given the name Belteshazzar. I was going to try and say that so well, and then I butchered it. Anyway, you can go and read it. So they refused. This group of young men refused. And luckily, Daniel had really won over the hearts of the prince of the eunuchs and the eunuch that was in charge of them. And he convinced them to let him and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to eat pulse, which is vegetables and seeds and nuts, essentially a vegetarian diet for 10 days and to then check back with them to see if they are still doing just as well as the others. So after 10 days, they see that they are doing even better than the other trainees. So they were permitted to continue with this different diet. God blessed them with wisdom and skill and Daniel, especially with the ability to interpret dreams. In the second chapter, Daniel saves all the wise men in the kingdom from being killed, including himself, because King Nebuchadnezzar wanted a dream interpreted that he had, but he refused to tell anybody what the dream was and required that they just know it because he said, if I tell you what the dream is, you're just going to, you're just going to make up what you think it means just to please me. But if I don't tell you, then I know that you really know what you're talking about. When no one could do it, he just said he was going to kill them all. Then Daniel heard about this and said, give me a little bit and let me inquire of the Lord. So he did. And he was able to tell King Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was and what it meant. The king saw a great image and a stone cut from the mountain without hands destroyed the image. And the stone grew and filled the whole earth. And this is symbolic of the latter day kingdom of God taking over and filling the whole earth. Next, in chapter 3, is my favorite story and the one that we are going to talk about today. So for right now, for this recap, I'm going to skip it. But just to give you a clue, it does not include Daniel. It is about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In chapter 4, Daniel interprets another dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. The dream is a great tree that is cut down and destroyed. Daniel tells the king that this is symbolic of his fall as a king and his descent into madness, which we will see happens because in chapter five, we have a new king and they reference the king's madness and and ultimate death. Chapter five is a good one. It's where we get the common phrase. You can't read the writing on the wall or he can't read the writing on the wall. In this chapter, the new king, who is Nebuchadnezzar's son, his name is Belth. Belshazzar, the names in this are killing me. His name is Belshazzar, takes out the spoils that the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, have of treasure from the temple in Jerusalem. And he decides that he and his concubines and all his special people decide to eat and drink using these treasures from the temple as their dishes. As they were praising the gods of gold and brass and silver, the king saw a hand come and write a message on the wall in a language that he couldn't read. He was very disturbed about this and eventually asked that Daniel come help interpret what was written on the wall. Daniel basically tells him, you know what happened to your father, King Nebuchadnezzar. You know about the dream, and yet you are still following in his footsteps by being so wicked and prideful. And here you are now in mockery of God using treasures from his temple to eat and drink and praise false idols. The writing on the wall says, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upfarsin. 
So mene means God hath numbered thy kingdom and finish it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the, the Medes and the Persians. So basically, your days as king are numbered, and you have been judged by God and found wanting, and he is not happy with you, and your kingdom will be divided and given to others. At this point, Daniel is praised and made a third ruler over the kingdom, but it's too late, and I think the Lord knew that the king's heart really wasn't changed. So the king was killed that night by the Persians as they took over the kingdom. Chapter 6 is where we get that historical inaccuracy. It says that the king of the Persians at the time was Darius, but that's not backed up with any other sources, so that is questionable. At any rate, the next story is one that you are very familiar with, likely. King Darius favors Daniel, loves Daniel, makes him what is called the first of the presidents. The other princes or presidents didn't like that he was so popular and that the king loved him so much, so they were trying to find a way to get him in trouble. They convinced King Darius to issue a decree saying that no one should pray to God, and if they are, that they'll they'll be thrown into the lion's den. And they did this because they knew that Daniel would refuse not to pray to God, and they were right. He continues to pray to God, and Darius, when he found out, he was very heartbroken because he loved Daniel. He tried really hard to figure out a way to make it so that Daniel didn't have to receive this consequence, but in the law of the Persians, no decree was allowed to be changed once it had been issued. And you'll remember that this was also the case with the decree that was put forward by the king in the story of Esther. He said that the Jews were to all be killed on a certain day. And so even when he found out that this was all a ploy and that his wife was a Jew, he still wasn't able to change it. So he had to kind of do a workaround. So anyhow, King Darius knew that he had to follow through with what he would say, what he said would happen, which is that anyone who is caught praying would be cast to the lion's den. Daniel is cast into the lion's den and the king tells Daniel before he he goes and does this, that he knows that Daniel's God will deliver him. The king himself is there as Daniel is sealed into the lion's den and he goes home and he fasts the whole night and he isn't able to sleep. And as soon as the morning comes, he rushes to the lion's den and he has it unsealed and he cried to Daniel in a very worried and upset voice saying, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. My God hath sent his angel, and hath shut the lion's mouth, that they have not hurt me. For as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, I have done no hurt. Then was the king exceedingly glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him, because he believed in his God. Okay, so that is the gist of the stories in chapters 1 through 6. But I want to get to my favorite story in chapter 3. This is when King Nebuchadnezzar was still king. And in this chapter, he makes a large golden idol and commands that everyone worship it. Every time they hear this special music that will call out and give you a cue that you need to fall down and worship this idol. And anyone who doesn't do this will be cast into a fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse, and some Chaldeans tattle on them to the king, and the king is super mad. He has them come to him, and he asks them why they are refusing to do as he has commanded. And I love how they answer, starting in verse 16 of chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. 
If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Those bold statements make the king incredibly angry, and he commands that the furnace be made seven times hotter than usual. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are tied up and shoved into the furnace. The furnace is so hot that the guys who shove them into the furnace die because it's so hot. And then the shocking scene plays out where the king looks into the furnace and he can see all three of them plus one other figure that he says looks like the son of God walking around in the furnace. After their astonishment, he commands that they come out and they come out and they emerge completely unharmed. Not even their clothes are singed. In verse 28, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve or worship any god except their own god. He then commands the whole kingdom that no one is to speak of any word against the god of these three men, and he promotes them. Okay. I want to talk about their response to King Nebuchadnezzar, especially the very first thing they say. They say, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Why did they start that way? What made them say, what made them think to say, we are not careful to answer in this matter? I was trying to think how, if I were saying that to to someone, if I were in a crazy situation and someone asked me about about why I wasn't doing something that I wasn't supposed to be doing. I think I would say something like, you know what? Yes, I will tell you. And I am not ashamed to tell you why, nor do I fear you more than I fear God. That's kind of what that means to me. If someone was trying to be careful, what would their, their motives have been? Would they be trying to save themselves by saying what the king wanted to hear or perhaps giving in and doing what the king wanted? They could have tried to be a little less bold with their words in order to try to get themselves out of the situation, or they could have completely lied or sugarcoated, but they didn't. So what are some of the implications? What are, what are some things that we know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because of this response? They had complete faith absolute faith in God, not the kind of faith that required that God saved them, although that's what they would have probably preferred, but the kind of faith that was willing to do anything in the pursuit of choosing the Lord. They said that they knew God could save them if that was his will, but they also proclaimed that if it wasn't his will, that they wanted to make sure that they made it known that they would absolutely not worship this false idol, even if it meant that they die. So how does that, how can we apply that to ourselves? As we speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives, are we ever careful with our words as we speak his doctrine? Paul said to the saints in Rome, in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16, after he says that he's ready to preach the gospel, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. What does it look like to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Now, I'll preface this by saying that we all have 
the ability, hopefully, if we have the spirit with us to have the spirit help us discern what will be productive and helpful in any given moment. We are also commanded not to have the spirit of contention. So not being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ should not be confused with being combative or contentious or argumentative with people. I think often people get confused with that. And the Lord tells us that his spirit is not in that. So that that's not helpful. And then on the other side of things, other things that are not helpful, what does it look like to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? These are some of the ways that came to my mind. Being unwilling or hesitant, leaving it to others to share the gospel when prompted because of what the other person or people may think. Sugarcoating or twisting doctrine in order to make yourself or others more comfortable, even perhaps going to the extent that you twist doctrine in your own mind, deciding that you must know better than God or or that you've got too much pressure from the world and it makes you feel uncomfortable and it makes you think that maybe the Lord is wrong. Another example might be being too embarrassed to make different choices than those around you because of what they might think. And I think a lot of times when we say something like that, we apply that to teenagers and peer pressure. But I think it happens to us adults all the time. Just to give you an example, I have definitely had this happen in my life when someone wants to watch something, a movie or a show, that I don't feel aligns with what Heavenly Father would want me to watch. And so I have to tell them that I'm not willing to watch it, which sometimes makes me uncomfortable because it makes me feel like they feel like I'm judging them or condemning them and I don't want that. But I also care more about what Heavenly Father wants me to do. And so I have to say it. Or sometimes I've had it happen where there are shows that other parents are willing to let their kids watch. And they want to put that show on and have my kids watch with them. And I have to choose to be awkward and say that my kids aren't allowed to watch that. Another way of being ashamed that I think of is being afraid of appearing too into religion. I know that that is something I have struggled with a little bit, especially the more that I study and grow to love the gospel even more deeply. I just want to talk about it all the time. And one of my favorite things to do is to talk to people about the gospel. And I always think about a scripture, 2 Nephi 25, 26. We talk of Christ. We rejoice in Christ. We preach of Christ. We prophesy of Christ. And we write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. I want the gospel to be so intertwined with who I am that my children will know to what source they may look for for a remission of their sins. Now, this can be really tricky, a tricky balance to strike, because I don't think that anyone wants to be around someone else who can't talk about anything else or talk about normal things. So, of course, that's something that you have to decide for yourself and figure out, and that's something that that I have tried to, to balance in my own life. But I never want to be so concerned with how people perceive me that I notice that I'm trying to hide my love for the gospel. I don't know if that all made sense, but it's something that that I think about often. So now that we've talked a little bit about being what it is, what it might look like to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what does it look like to be the opposite, to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? It certainly doesn't mean that we should be naive to the consequences. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that the consequence would be severe and could very well be death if it wasn't the Lord's will to save them. As we boldly declare our devotion to the Lord and his doctrine, we would not be truly being faithful if we required that the Lord shield us from any consequences. Christians have been persecuted since the beginning of time. 
It's not consistent with history, or for that matter, doctrine, that we should expect any different. The Lord sent us here so that we can choose between good and evil, and so that other people can choose between good and evil. And the God-given choices of others and temptations of Satan, influence of Satan, might sometimes affect us negatively, even severely. Jesus taught in Luke chapter 6, verse 22, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. And again, in Matthew chapter 5, it says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. One of my favorite prophets to read about that was persecuted is in the Book of Mormon, and he endured a similar experience as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then, but then, had to embrace the consequences of that bold declaration of faith, Abinadi. The prophet Abinadi had been called to preach repentance to the people of King Noah. The priest and king are offended because he's telling them that they are doing evil, that they're not teaching the people, that they're going to be destroyed and taken captives by their captive by their enemies. And because of this, Abinadi was imprisoned and taken before the court of King Noah and his priest to be questioned about the gospel with the intent of trying to trip him up. Abinadi condemns them for not teaching the people. This makes King Noah angry, and he commands that Abinadi be killed. It says in Mosiah chapter 13, starting in verse 2, And they stood forth and attempted to lay their hands on him, but he withstood them and said unto them, Touch me not, for God shall smite you if you lay your hands upon me, for I have not delivered the message which the Lord sent me to deliver. Neither have I told you that which ye requested that I should tell. Therefore God will not suffer that I shall be destroyed at this time. But I must fulfill the commandments wherewith God hath commanded me. And because I have told you the truth, ye are angry with me. And again, because I have spoken the word of God, ye have judged me that I am mad. And now it came to pass, after Abinadi had spoken these words, that the people of King Noah durst not lay their hands on him. For the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and his face shone with exceeding luster, even as Moses did while on the Mount Sinai, while speaking with the Lord. And he spake with power and authority from God. And he continued his words, saying, Ye see that ye have not power to slay me, therefore I finish my message. Yea, and I perceive that it cuts you to your hearts, because I tell you the truth concerning your iniquities. Yea, and my words fill you with wonder and amazement and with anger. But I finish my message, and then it matters not whither I go, if it so be that I am saved. But this much I tell you, what you do with me after this shall be a type and a shadow of things which are to come. Abinadi continues to remind them and to testify of the Ten Commandments to them because he perceives that the Ten Commandments are not written upon their hearts. He reminds them of the words of Isaiah. He testifies of the redemption. In chapter 16, verse 6, he continues speaking to them, saying, If Christ had not come into the world, speaking of things as though they had already come, there could have been no redemption. And if Christ had not risen from the dead or have broken the bands of death, that the grave should have no victory, that death should have no sting, there could have been no resurrection, but there is a resurrection. Therefore, the grave hath no victory, and the sting of death is swallowed up in Christ. 
He is the light and the life of the world, yea, a light that is endless, that can never be darkened, yea, and also a life which is endless, that there can be no more death. Even this mortal shall put on immortality, and this corruption shall put on incorruption, and shall be brought to stand before the bar of God, to be judged of him according to their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. If they be good, to the resurrection of endless life and happiness, and if they be evil, to the resurrection of endless damnation, being delivered up to the devil, who hath subjected them, which is damnation. Having gone according to their own carnal wills and desires, having never called upon the Lord, while the arms of mercy were extended toward them. For the arms of mercy were extended towards them, and they would not. They being warned of their iniquities, and yet they would not depart from them. And they were commanded to repent, and yet they would not repent. And now ought ye not to tremble and repent of your sins, and remember that only in and through Christ you can be saved? Therefore, if ye teach the law of Moses, also teach that it is a shadow of those things which are to come. Teach them that redemption cometh through Christ the Lord, who is the very eternal Father. Amen. After this powerful testimony, he's taken back to prison for three days and then asked to recall his words, a demand which he refused, saying, I say unto you, I will not recall the words which I have spoken unto you concerning this people, for they are true. And that ye may know of their surety, I have suffered myself that I have fallen into your hands. Yea, and I will suffer even until death, and I will not recall my words, and they shall stand as a testimony against you. And if ye slay me, ye will shed innocent blood, and this shall also stand as a testimony against you at the last day. And it came to pass that they took him and bound him and scourged his skin with faggots, yea, even unto death. Abinadi overcame the world. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego overcame the world. And they prioritized the Lord over their earthly lives. We study them now, thousands of years later, because of their devotion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We might never be threatened with actual physical death, or pain, although that wouldn't surprise me either at this point. But do you think that the Lord expects anything less than bravery from you and from me? No. I know He expects me to be brave. He requires me to be brave. And I think if we think anything less than that, we are fooling ourselves. I want to end with what President Nelson said in his talk this last general conference Overcome the World and Find Rest. He says, what does it mean to overcome the world? It means overcoming the temptation to care more about the things of this world than the things of God. It means trusting the doctrine of Christ more than the philosophies of men. It means delighting in truth, denouncing deception, and becoming humble followers of Christ. It means choosing to refrain from anything that drives away the spirit. It means being willing to give away even our favorite sins. Now, overcoming the world certainly does not mean becoming perfect in this life, nor does it mean that your problems will magically evaporate, because they won't. And it does not mean that you won't still make mistakes. But overcoming the world does mean that your resistance to sin will increase. Your heart will soften as your faith in Jesus Christ increases. Overcoming the world means growing to love God and His beloved Son more than you love anyone or anything else. Overcoming the world is not an event that happens in a day or two. It happens over a lifetime as we repeatedly embrace the doctrine of Christ. We cultivate faith in Jesus Christ by repenting daily and keeping covenants that endow us with power. We stay on the covenant path and are blessed with spiritual strength, personal revelation, increasing faith, and the ministering of angels. Living the doctrine of Christ can produce the most powerful, virtuous cycle, creating spiritual momentum in our lives. 
As we strive to live the higher laws of Jesus Christ, our hearts and our very natures begin to change. The Savior lifts us above the pull of this fallen world by blessing us with greater charity, humility, generosity, kindness, self-discipline, peace, and rest. Now, you may be thinking, this sounds more like hard spiritual work than rest. But here is the grand truth. While the world insists that power, possessions, popularity, and pleasures of the flesh bring happiness, they do not. They cannot. What they do produce is nothing but a hollow substitute for the blessed and happy state of those who keep the commandments of God. The truth is that it is much more exhausting to seek happiness where you can never find it. However, when you yoke yourself with Jesus Christ and do the spiritual work required to overcome the world, He, and He alone, does have the power to lift you above the pull of the world. Now, how does overcoming the world bless our lives? The answer is clear. Entering into a covenant relationship with God binds us to Him in a way that makes everything about life easier. Please do not misunderstand me. I did not say that making covenants makes life easy. In fact, expect opposition, because the adversary does not want you to discover the power of Jesus Christ. But yoking yourself with the Savior means you have access to His strength and redeeming power. I reaffirm a profound teaching of President Ezra Taft Benson. Men and women who turn their lives over to God will discover that He can make a lot more out of their lives than they can. He will deepen their joys, expand their vision, quicken their minds, lift their spirits, multiply their blessings, increase their opportunities, comfort their souls, raise up friends, and pour out peace. These incomparable privileges follow those who seek the support of heaven to help them overcome this world. To this end, I extend to members of the entire church the same charge I gave to our young adults last May. I urge them then, and I plead with you now, to take charge of your own testimony of Jesus Christ and His gospel. Work for it. Nurture it so that it will grow. Feed it truth. Don't pollute it with false philosophies of unbelieving men and women. As you make the continual strengthening of your testimony of Jesus Christ your highest priority, watch for miracles to happen in your life. My plea to you this morning is to find rest from the intensity, uncertainty, and anguish of this world by overcoming the world through your covenants with God. Let Him know through your prayers and your actions that you are serious about overcoming the world. Ask Him to enlighten your mind and send the help you need. Each day, record the thoughts that come to you as you pray, then follow through diligently. Spend more time in the temple and seek to understand how the temple teaches you to rise above this fallen world. As I have stated before, the gathering of Israel is the most important work taking place on the earth today. One crucial element of this gathering is preparing a people who are able, ready, and worthy to receive the Lord when He comes again. A people who have already chosen Jesus Christ over this fallen world. A people who rejoice in their agency to live the higher, holier laws of Jesus Christ. I call upon you, my dear brothers and sisters, to become this righteous people. Cherish and honor your covenants above all other commitments. As you let God prevail in your life, I promise you greater peace, confidence, joy, and yes, rest. With the power of the Holy Apostleship vested in me, I bless you in your quest to overcome this world. I bless you to increase your faith in Jesus Christ and learn better how to draw upon His power. I bless you to be able to discern truth from error. I bless you to care more about the things of God than the things of this world. I bless you to see the needs of those around you and strengthen those you love. Because Jesus Christ overcame this world, you can too. So I testify in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.